On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind, listen to my conversation with Tim Walmsley, founder of Benchon. We discuss what the future of work could look like, lessons learned from scaling from a startup, and managing both the supply and demand sides of a two-sided marketplace. My name is Aidan Vokolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life, to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for coming on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Tim, you're the founder of Benchon, who allows organizations to smooth out the demands of the business cycle to maximize employee productivity. Employees these days are such a valuable asset to any business, and Benchon allows employees to train their skill set in a variety of workplaces while still delivering profit for their current organization. Tell me, where did the idea of Benchon come from? Uh, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one. I'm, I'm actually a retired army major, and um, during my time in the military, I got injured, and I started working on defense projects. So I was, I was managing a, a $2 billion defense program, and during that time, I got a really good understanding of how governments did their contracting and then how they engage with industry. And then uh, when I jumped out of defense, I, I got a really good job in industry, which gave me obviously the other side of the coin. And I guess because I had fresh eyes coming into the industry from my military background, I was looking at things, trying to work out why things were the way that they were. And I saw I saw a lot of great people that were highly skilled, very, very competent. Like, you know, I would have hired them in a second and I saw them losing their jobs. And so I was asking, why is that happening? And it was, they just go, oh, look, you know, a contract ended and the business didn't have anything for me. So they had to let me go or... You know, the, we were just going through a bit of a lull in the company and they couldn't keep me on. And that didn't seem right. And then, you know, I was hearing all these stories from business owners, like these really amazing niche businesses that were doing some really cutting edge stuff. And then I'd meet up with the owner and they go, oh, no, I shut that down last month because, you know, we had a, we had a gap in a project or, you know, we lost a contract and I tried to keep going and keep my staff on, but we ran out of money and I had to shut the company down. So it was, it was clear to me that there was a massive problem. And I saw this in, in practice, you know, I saw businesses losing great employees on mass just because of this stop start nature that industry had become because we're very contract and project based. And then I was sitting inside a large organization's talent sourcing department. And one of their, one of their people in there slammed the phone down. It was really loud. He screams and he goes, bloody government. I told them six weeks ago they were going to need two systems engineers. They completely ignored me. And now they've just got off the phone and they're telling me, oh, we've got a massive issue. I need two systems engineers by tomorrow. And he goes, I don't just have a bench of engineers sitting around waiting for their phone call. And it sort of hit me then. It was like, I know exactly where they are. They're sitting inside companies, not doing anything because they're in a gap. And we just need to create the visibility so that companies who need specialist support can find them exactly where they are, no matter where they're hidden. And so, yeah, went home that night and wrote a business plan. What happened next? So I went and uh, ran the business plan past my mentor, who loved the idea. And he actually said, hey, I'll back you if you want to take this on. So I went, okay, great. So I went and systems engineered the whole platform in wire diagrams. I think it was about a 30-page document of wire diagrams of how I wanted the platform to work. Uh, my mentor had a, a contact at an IT company, so we went to them and got a quote. And then the quote came back at a million dollars to build it. Wow. And 
I could almost hear my mentor just pull his parachute and get sucked out the door going, you're on your own, you know, and he he just said, he goes, I don't have a million bucks, you know, good luck. So I actually thought the the idea was dead, but the idea stuck with me. It was such a strong idea that that I couldn't let it go. So I sort of searched around for alternative ways to, to get this business off the ground. And I found Blue Chili, the startup accelerator. It's run by Sebastian Eckersley Maslin, who's an ex-defense person as well. So I was naturally sort of drawn towards him. Uh, And I met with him over lunch and pitched him the idea and he went, all right, you're in. So I went through their validation boot camp and pitched them again and then got into their their 156 program, which helps you build build out your ideas and and I'm glad I did because you know what was a million dollar you know a million dollar price tag to get it off the ground we ended up getting an MVP done and out in the market earning revenue with about 30 grand so it was just a completely different way of doing it you know I'd never been in the entrepreneurial innovation circuits I didn't know anything about lean startups or or anything like that so they were able to sort of talk me through that and teach me about it and that's how we got started yeah, I mean, it's such a massive gap in the market. Having employees that are sort of underutilized in, in these big companies or even smaller companies and just sort of match make them with companies that need specialized staff <coughs> sort of makes you wonder, you know, why didn't someone think of it before? But it's... um Actually, I get that a lot. A lot of people, I, and I'm talking so many, and I'd be interested to know if other entrepreneurs get this a lot, but you pitch an idea and they go, oh, yeah, I had that idea five years ago or I had that idea seven years ago. First things first. Okay, great. If you had the idea and you didn't act on it, sucks to be you. But there were actual companies that did try this in the past, but they were, they were companies that had skin in the game, you know, big enterprises that realized they had this problem. So they create a platform for it, but it didn't work because it only was relevant to them and their clients or their partners. You know, it cut out most of the market because all of their competitors didn't want to use the platform because they don't want to be boosting up you know, their competitor's business. And that's why we've been unique in the fact that we are a completely unbiased third party, which has an open market approach for every company in Australia. We have no skin in the game. We don't care who wins the contracts. We just want to make sure that we match match them up and create job stability for Australians. Yeah, and I think that's that's your um, bench on sort of unique selling proposition in a way. That the fact that you're not tied to any big, large corporation. I think I was working for one of the big four and we started to do something similar at least initially, but yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head that the big problem with that is, you know, you're quite restricted in terms of what staff you have available, whereas where Benchon is able to go to, a, you know, a much larger variety of um, organizations and be able to sort of match make and pull from different industries. Yeah, and the industry cries out a lot of the time about massive talent shortages, you know, but the the average underutilization rate of employees across the world is sitting at 27%. You know, in the markets we see here in Australia, it's anywhere between 20% and 60% underutilization. So the talent is, you know, we believe the talent's there. It's just not being utilized productively wherever it's needed. And when you talk about and you look at all the different configurations of skill sets by industry, by specialty, by geographical location, I mean, the exact same person would be described in six different ways, depending on what industry they're in or what company they work for. So the talent is there. You just need to cast the widest net possible to find them. And that's why we say, you know, we find you the hidden talent inside other companies because there could be someone in a completely different industry, in a completely different state, doing a completely different job, 
but they have the exact skill set and experience that you need. So yeah, that's why we work and that's why we've taken a, a horizontal approach to building a, our marketplace across all industries to try and maximize uh, the matches. Where do you see the workplace going over the next five years or so? Um, obviously, there's been a lot of sort of, in a way, casualization of the workforce recently, especially with millennials entering, you know, becoming more prominent in the market. Where do you see it all going? Yeah, so I see so many future of work, you know, specialists, and I'm doing that in inverted commas, that claim to know where we're going. And, and what they do is they see these trends and they latch onto them and just say, well, that's the future of work. I mean, how many, how many people out there go, oh, this is the future of work or this one thing is going to be the future of work. And it's the future of work is not one thing. Well, that's my opinion anyway. The future of work is a perfect balance of every different type of employment that we have now, as well as that will be created in the future. Because human beings are not one size fits all. You know, I've, I've seen people say that because there's this trend of the casualization in the workforce, that in the future, we're all going to be independent contractors running around you know, just getting a buzz on our phone when someone needs our skill set and then we run off and do the work that we love. I mean, that's ridiculous. That doesn't suit everybody's lifestyle, you know? So I'll give you examples like a, okay, a stay at home parent. Yes, they want gig work or freelance work that they can do in between putting the kids down to earn extra money on the side and keep their skills sharp. A kid coming out of university, they're in no place to become an independent contractor. They need to be joining a firm and learning their trade in a, framework of mentoring, training, and, you know, a proven methodology so that they can learn their craft. And then those people that are at the end of their careers, they're the ones who can go out, who've made a name for themselves, who are like the leaders in their field, and they can go out and be independent contractors and, and live that life and pick and choose the projects they want. So there will be a mix of gig work, or when you've got casual, part-time gig work, freelance work, independent contractors, full-time work, you know, entrepreneurs. And I think that'll be it. The future work, I think, is exciting. We'll be able to pick and choose how we work depending on what stage of life we're in or what, you know, situation we find ourselves in. And I don't think that's that's scary at all. I just think that people have focused on these trends too long. And then there's this whole suite of new companies that come through. Like you see so many companies trying to reinvent the recruitment market. So many companies out there trying to have niche freelance websites. But no one's been looking after the full-time employee. And that's what we're doing. You know, like reports say that, you know, by 2020 or 2022 or whatever, 40% of the workforce will be doing some sort of gig work or, you know, independent work. Okay. But that still leaves 60% of the workforce that are in full-time work. So why aren't we looking after the majority of people? And that's sort of where Bench On fits in. Mm, giving people sort of that security and stability you know, and the fact that yeah. they're sort of, you know, it's more guaranteed work for them. You know, they're not going to be worried that the company will go through a downturn and have to fire, you know, 20% of their staff. They'll be able to sort of keep their staff on, hire them out to other organizations and um, sort of keep everybody, everybody happy in a sense. Yeah. We don't believe that everybody should be in a full-time job, but we believe that everybody who wants it should be able to get job stability. And, and that's, that's why we built Benchon. Mm. So it's such a noble goal to, to have. I think back in the day, you know, job stability was, correct me if I'm wrong, more sort of prominent and more um, sort of guaranteed. Whereas these days, it's um, sort of, yeah, I think job stability is, is something that used to be sought after and guaranteed by yeah. big companies. And these days, not as much. But where you're, you're sort of coming in to keep that stability going and going forward, because it makes sense for a business to keep hold of their staff if they can use it for other, other organizations in those sort of lull periods. 
Yeah, I mean, gone are the days of working for the same company for 20, 30 years like it was back in the day. And no one's trying to bring that back. But what we want to do is create an environment where businesses can have the flexibility and agility of the gig economy to be able to move staff when and where they need it, but also couple that with the stability of full-time employment so that you can invest in staff, you can continually train them, you can allow them to go out on secondments to work on, you know, even passion projects. You know, you might have a software developer who works for your, you know, for your company, but they're also did engineering back in the day and they want to go out and work on a, a lower level engineering project just to, you know, keep those skills up. So imagine as an employee, your employer saying, yeah, I've hired you for this job, but there's an opportunity for you to go out and do this because I know that that's something you're interested in and you've got the skills to do it. So we're going to, we're going to let you go out and do that. So it gives them the younger generation that are coming through that do have multiple interests the ability to use all of those interests, but still know where their next paycheck's coming from and still have the stability to be able to buy a house and get a car loan and, you know, all of those good things that, that require a steady paycheck. Yeah. So having that stability, but also the flexibility to, you know, to work on their actual interests and not, not having to sort of conform to what the business wants or needs at that point in time can be more sort of flexible yeah. in, in where they go and what they do and then bring those skill sets back to the organization and, and build it up from there. Yeah, because I mean, corporate knowledge is, is quite a valuable asset to any business. So the, the constant turnover of staff that we're seeing now is actually hurting businesses, which ends up hurting industry overall. So if we can maintain that corporate knowledge uh, within a business and it improves their bottom line and uh, improves the industry for everyone else. For sure. Do you have an idea of what the turnover rate is at a sort of general level, what the average rate of uh, turnover is? No, I was reading a PwC report the other day and it was it was actually there's no like set figure of well that I've seen on the the at like the turnover rate across industries or anything like that but the turnover rate has certainly increased and particularly with millennials I I thought I I read that is it one in 3 uh millennials don't survive the 3 month probationary period which is a, is an enormous turnover cost imagine that for every 3 people you hire one of them won't make three months. Um, so the, all the effort and time that you put into them in those three-month periods, just gone, wasted. I mean, turnover cost is such a big one, but most companies don't take into account the, the additional costs on top of that turnover cost. You know, you've got the turnover cost of retraining and onboarding and all those sorts of things, but then you've got, you know, the, the cost of culture, you know, the cost of your culture. Like if you're seen letting staff go or putting them on the chopping block just because there's a gap, then I'm sure the rest of the staff are there going, well, when's my turn next? You got reputational damage in, in the industry where you're seen to be either churning through your staff or losing staff. I mean, that has a big impact on your reputation in the market. And then you got opportunity cost, you know, the opportunity cost of having those trained, you know, uh, ready to go employees and how you can use them to generate revenue for your business. And if you don't have them upskilled and with their head in the game, then you lose that opportunity. So there's, there is plenty of costs associated with not having a standardized workforce. Mm, for sure. And I, I guess it's one of the, you know, businesses sort of look if they're trying to cut costs to employees as one of the first sort of sources to cut back on. But like you've said, you know, there are so many other additional costs to losing staff that it sort of eats back into the money you'd be saving anyway. Yeah, like it's letting staff go to save costs is so short-sighted. 
And I, I mean, I understand why they do it. Salaries are often the biggest expense to a company and often the, the easiest way to make sure that you stay afloat. But I always say to people, it's like saying, I need to lose weight fast, so I'm going to cut off my leg. I mean, yeah, sure, you've lost weight, but now everything you do from here on out is going to be that much harder because you're missing a leg. And that's exactly what it's like when you cut staff to save money. Yeah, you've, you've saved money in the short term, but now actually continuing on your business and you know continuing to grow is that much harder because you don't have the people or the expertise there to do it. Yeah, it sort of hamstrings you in a sense going forward. You, know, yeah. you, might, you might save it for the next year. But then, you know, like you said, if there's new opportunities that come up and you don't have the workforce to meet the demand, then you miss out on all that extra money. Yeah, that's right. With Benchong, what's the sort of range of businesses that can utilize the platform? Yeah, it's pretty much open to everyone. We have every everything from, you know, global corporates like big four consulting firms, you know, large national brands like big four banks and energy providers, right down to small businesses and startups and micro firms. So certainly size of business is we have all sizes. It's basically in terms of the industry that they operate in. So we're in mainly in contract and project-based industries like defense, IT, mining, oil and gas, construction, telecommunications, rail, those sorts of ones that are very project-heavy. But what we've noticed is that the majority of our industries are becoming much more contract-based and project-based. And it's just because of this risk-adverse nature in business at the moment that everyone wants to reduce their risk as much as possible. And the way to do that is to do it on a, on a contract project base. So we've had companies from, you know, health, disability services, HR, marketing, you know, all of these companies are coming to us and saying, Hey, we have this problem. Can you help us out? So that's why we've gone horizontal across all. And then we, we try to build a market around each one of our clients to create that supply and demand for them. I guess the only ones that doesn't suit are companies that are in shift based work. Like we're not designed to support filling shifts in like hospitality and retail, those sorts of ones. We, we're not down to that fidelity. We're talking contracts of, say, one day to, to three years in duration. Sure. Yeah, that, that's an important distinction to make. You talked about just before about meeting the sort of supply and demand sort of constraints. How have you managed uh, that balance between yeah. sort of being on both sides of the, um, the equation? Yeah, it has been very, very difficult to create. Supply and demand, not only by industry, but also by skill set. And you can imagine how complex that would be. So we've only just sort of exited out of our pilot phase. So we were in pilot phase for two years. And during that time, it was about, it was about not only growing the market, but also learning how different companies operate. What we realized was, is that even though every business experiences peaks and troughs, no, whether, whether you're an enterprise or whether you're a, you know, a startup, you still have these peaks and troughs. In general terms, the enterprises are where all the contracts are and the small to medium businesses is where all the oversupply is of staff. Uh, and that's because the big enterprises have the, the money, the staff and the weight behind them to win these major government projects. And so they then have all the demand for talent and they can't do it all in-house. So they, they go out to suppliers. Small businesses don't have big business development teams. So they can't, they can't go out and seek out all these contracts when and where they need them. So therefore they have, they have more oversupply. So what we realized during the two years was that we needed to really crack into the enterprise market and get that heavy demand in because supply is fairly easy to, to bring on. You know, if you ring, if you ring a small business and say, Hey, I've got a $150,000 contract for a project manager for four months. 
Um, can I talk to someone about your capabilities and see whether you'd like to go for it? They're more than open to that, you know, and you can bring them on fairly quickly for that contract. Yet if you have a whole lot of supply and you try and bring companies who are, you know, advertising on Seek or, you know, whatever, it's almost impossible to bring them on. They just think you're a recruitment agency and they normally hang up on you. So what we did is we we worked quite closely with our enterprise clients that we had pilot programs with to work out exactly what their processes were because they're very set in their ways, right? They have they have these set processes and they don't like going around it no matter how much they spruik about innovation. They don't go outside their process. So we worked within their processes and we worked out, okay, well, how do you do things now? What are the issues you have now? And then how can we develop software systems that fit into your process but still fix your problems? And that's what we've done. So we've just released four new enterprise software products and they were just released in January. And already we have contracts closed that will grow our market by a, a minimum of 200% this year. And we've got at least seven or eight enterprises that have requested proposals that when they come off, <laughs> that should give us about an eight to 900% growth this year. So we're in for an amazing year ahead. Yeah, that's phenomenal growth. And so you basically, you tailor the, I guess, product or software integration with each of the enterprises. So that you well, can we don't it, process. Yeah, it's because we're a cloud-based system, so there's no integration into their software systems or anything like that. It's just done through through the web, but uh, the web app. But it's designed so that they can use it within their process. So I'll give you an example. Every large company has a preferred supplier panel. That's normally a select group of companies that they've pre-vetted. They've done all the contract work for. It normally takes three to four months to vet, a, you know, to get a company vetted onto the supplier panel. But once they're on there, they usually go to those those companies just to fulfill their requirements. But they're still doing it manually. They're still managing those supplier panels with emails and phone calls. And I mean, the average time to source on those supplier panels is anywhere from sort of a month to two months. So what we did is we didn't change the way that they do their supplier panels or any of their contractual relationships, but we made it so that those companies can bring their suppliers into their venture on profile and manage that supply panel digitally. So enter the job once, allocate it to the suppliers that you want, press submit, and then our system will automatically tell them who those suppliers have available that meet those requirements. So now they're not waiting for, you know, Joe Bloggs to finish his meetings and come back and review the emails and then go check with another guy in the office and you know, it's all there on one system. So it takes the time to source down from two months down to one day. Yeah. So it's like a it's sort of automating that, that whole process and really, you know, matching people with the right jobs at the right time when the business needs it. Yeah. And, and look, so another example is the, the issues that we found was, is that because of the supplier panel arrangements, what was happening was it was creating a margin on margin effect because they go to their 10 suppliers and say, I need this specialist project manager. If those 10 suppliers didn't have it, they were going to their suppliers, who were then going to their suppliers, who were then going to their suppliers. I mean, we've seen five levels of companies in the one-person contract, which is insane. That's an additional five margins on top of the original person's cost that the end client's having to pay. And that's all because of the inefficiency of not having the visibility to be able to reach out and touch the exact company that has that person directly and, and having to go through a multi-layered network a personal network to see if you can find a person. Um, yeah, so yeah, our system cuts that out. Mm, that's really valuable. To the businesses that use Benchon, you know, being able to reduce the, or not have to go through, you know, five levels of suppliers, which sounds ridiculous to find one person. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. So yeah, the things you learn, hey? What are some of the biggest learnings you've had over the, the last two years? 
Uh, in what context? In terms of you know starting a business, or in terms of bench on, or in terms of I guess in terms of scaling from your idea where you know from that thirty grand sort of MVP from Blue Chili to where you are now and where you you'd like to be at the end of the year. That's a lot of growth to have in such a short amount of time. So what, yeah. What have um, you had through that process? Yeah. So I guess the first one is nothing happens ever as fast as you think. I learned to separate the, I guess, the micro wins from the long-term wins or the short-term wins from the long-term wins. You can get caught up as an entrepreneur, particularly if it's your idea and you're very passionate about it and you know it's going to work, that when you get a couple of positive indicators, you're like, oh, this is going to explode. In, in two years, we're going to be everywhere. But the reality is it's not going to be that quick. And I, you know, there's heaps of people out there talking about how the overnight success is, is a fallacy. You know, the average business takes 10 years to grow and become a mature, proper business. And I've learned that that is correct. I mean, I was an arrogant entrepreneur at the start and went, yeah, yeah, I'm going to buck that trend. I'm better than that. It'll happen, but it doesn't. And that's where you see these, you know, the roller coaster ride of being an entrepreneur where you have these massive highs where everything is going well and it's going to be awesome and it's all just going to happen. And then the inevitable slow uptake or, you know, roadblocks get put in your way or whatever it is. And then you have the downs. And that is a very, very real entrepreneurial uh, experience. So yeah, nothing happens overnight or as quickly as you think it's going to happen when you start. The other thing I learned was just because the companies that you're talking to have a problem doesn't mean they're going to jump at a solution. Like I've got a cartoon up on my wall and it's my favorite. And it's a picture of these these two guys pushing a cart through the mud with square wheels. And obviously it's like, you know, the mud's packing up in front of it and they're pushing really hard to get it through. And there's a guy standing next to the cart with a circular wheel saying, hey guys, I've got something to show you. And they said, sorry, we haven't got time to talk to you. We're too busy. Hmm. You know, and it's, it is that exact thing that happens all the time. Like you'll be talking to someone, they go, we're losing millions of dollars because of employees on the bench. And you go, okay, I've got this software that'll just fix that all for you. And they go, oh, okay, cool. Well, let's organize a meeting for two months time. And, you know, cause we're going through a restructure and we're really, really busy. And, you know, you end up, you know, bringing them on 12, 18 months later. But I mean, you could have saved them millions of dollars in the meantime. And that can be so frustrating, you know, but that's the way people are. Change is not something that everybody jumps at. And I guess in scaling too, the, the sort of core, the core lesson I learned is that your message will always evolve. Um, when I started Bench on my my message was very like industry specific. I was using a lot of uh, industry jargon. I w- actually went on to Mark Boris's podcast uh, on Mentor One, the Mentor podcast, and he'd been a mentor of mine. For, or no, he'd been um, someone I've looked up to for so long. I was so excited to meet him. And when I sat down to start the podcast, he turned around to me and he goes, "Tim, I have no effing idea what the hell you do." And so I explained it in my industry jargon. And he goes, no, no, no. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Simplify it for me. Simplify it for me. And so I simplified it right down. And, you know, that's exactly what we've done. We, we continue to simplify and rework the message on how we explain what we do, the benefits of it. Like it's constantly changing. So I had to let go of that message that I cling, you know, clung onto from the very start going, this is how I explain what I do. And just had to sort of let that go and just continually test it in the market and see how people reacted and which, which parts they took up and which parts they didn't and just continue to evolve the message. And so the way I explain Bench on now is nowhere near how I explained it at the start. 
that's a, that's a really valuable lesson to, to take on board and to have the humility to do it as well. Mm. Is, is, is a big it's a factor. tough. It's a tough thing to do, especially when you had like you know someone like Mark Boris and they're going, "I have no idea what you're talking about." And I was like, "Why? Why don't you?" You know, I wanted to shake him at the start and like, "Come on, you're a smart guy. You've got experience. You're sitting on the board. You know, you should you should know this stuff." And then I was like, "Well, actually, he was thinking." How do you explain this to a massive audience mm. uh, and get the point across? And that's exactly what it was. I was so focused in on my niche. I was actually hurting the business by explaining it in just that niche. And once I, once I simplified it right down and made a message that was applicable to all people, that it, the, the business really opened up. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it's, um, sometimes you can go too wide to begin with, but it seems like what you've done is you've gone really niche to begin with and then slowly widen the message as, you know, as you've gained traction and as you've gone along. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, there was one point you yeah. mentioned before that I would love to get your thoughts on. You mentioned the big highs and lows of entrepreneurship. How have you managed to traverse those highs and lows? I mean, it's obviously those highs and lows are more than what an employee would face at a company. You know, entrepreneurship's uh, a completely different game. Yeah, I can tell you this. I've served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and I've never experienced the level of anxiety and fear except in running my own business. The highs and lows are insane. I have learned more about myself as a person and grown more as a person because of starting my own startup um, than I have in, I reckon, the, the rest of my life. It, it is, it's a tough journey and you will experience things that you've never experienced before. Now, I have, I've had really, really low lows and I've had to pull myself out of it. And the only way I've done that is because I had a I had a really good support network around me. Like my wife is our COO. So she's in the business with me as well. So those days and times where, you know, I'm in a dark spot or I'm in a really, really low part and, and I've sort of lost the faith, she's able to sort of pick me up and build me back up and get me back on track. And and vice versa, I do the same for her. But yeah, it's it's about that. It's about making sure that the people around you have buy-in on what you're doing and then are and aware of what's going on. So I went through a period where I would just internalize everything and I'd shut down from the world when things were going bad. So I had to learn that I had to open up and I had to express what was going on and talk about the things that were happening and that would allow people to help me and get me back up to the to the highs again. Mm, yeah, it's um it's very important to have a support network around you and to, yeah. to make sure that everyone's sort of on the same page where possible. But I mean, obviously, it's hard hard to do that, especially when, when times aren't going well or in those low phases and then having to explain, you know, the situation and I guess trusting your employees to help support you to, you know, to carry you in a sense to to back to the highs. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, I mean that's not the what everyone will experience, you know. If, if you're young, you know, you're living at home, you're just out of university and you're starting a startup, there probably won't be that level of, that level of pressure. Um, but when we start a bench on, Katie and I sold our house. We put our life savings into it. You know, we've got two, two kids that go to private schools. Everything we had in our entire lives was riding on this business. So when you go through those periods where you're not sure whether the business is going to survive, that's a lot of pressure to take on. Yeah. It's really making so, yeah. it. Mm. That's it. But we, we, we did that on purpose. We we're like, well, we're, we're going all in. Like, we, we can't have one foot in, one foot out. If we're going in, we're going to throw everything at it and either succeed or fail. Yeah. And, you know, succeed you have. Or, you know, this year is going to be a, a really big year for you. Really excited to see where you go. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tim, uh, final question. What's your definition of the grind? My definition of the grind would be 
it's it's perseverance it is uh it is riding that roller coaster and sticking to your why like keeping the why in your mind and just continuing to grind even through the bad times and then also through the good times i mean there are days where we just go look we don't want to like we don't want to add off today you know and um you, you just have to persevere and push through those times and that's the grind of the entrepreneur that you can't stop. You just got to keep going and push through until you break through the next barrier and move on to the next thing. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing. Tim, where can people find more about you and BenchOn? Yeah, uh, our website is benchon.com. So B-E-N-C-H-O-N.com or please connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very We're very active on LinkedIn as our sort of social media platform of choice. So Please connect with both myself or Katie and you know we'll keep you up to date and let us know how we can help. Tim, thanks again for your time and for sharing all your um, sort of challenges and successes on the podcast. Thanks very much, Aiden. Appreciate it. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, I appreciate you for stopping by. Please subscribe. Otherwise, if you took away valuable advice from this episode, I'd love for you to share it with others. Until next time.